In this episode of So Dramatic, my guest is international businessman Jeffrey Prudence. Jeff and I talk about naturalist and painter John James Audubon. Most famous for his paintings in his book, Birds of America, we wonder whether at times he did more harm than good. Learn why Marjorie Stoneman Douglas is a badass who saved the Florida Everglades and that this world is only borrowed from our children. Jeffrey. Yes. Thank you for coming to my podcast. My pleasure. I know. I know I dragged you here kicking and screaming. Yes, kind of. <laughs> you are, you're one of the people who, I say this to every guest, but you always inspire me because of just your constant, constantly educating yourself. You're always reading. You're always looking at things. You're, you know what I mean? You yeah, love, try to. You love to learn. Right. And that, to me, I really try to make that. up for my childhood where I didn't. <laughs> but that's—I yeah. think it's better. Yeah, so do I. That you're self-educated, yeah. and that you didn't because you're done with school doesn't mean you're done learning. Right. And I think that's amazing. And I always love hearing you tell stories about things you things you learn and your experiences. And so how this works is. I invite someone to come to my podcast, come to my recording studio in my basement, right. and it's you don't know who I'm going to talk with you about. So I've right. researched someone who I think you would be interested in knowing about. I try not to pick someone I think you would know a ton about because I just think it's more fun to kind of walk through it with you. Right. Okay. So, Jeffrey. Who you, is it? Who right. is it? What have is you it? thought at all about this or you do not even? Well, yes, but I don't really, you know, I don't. I don't. I, I wouldn't say I know in depth about a lot of people. Right. I think I'm one of these guys that knows a lot about nothing, <laughs> or a very small amount about everything. So, <laughs> so yeah. yeah. It, that's the thing with you. I mean, you know so much about music and writers and art. You know what I mean? You're yeah, but, you're a renaissance only man. Only a little bit. Only a little bit of everything. <laughs> right. All right. So Jeffrey, I have chosen to talk with you <gasps> um, about James Audubon. Oh, oh, right. Okay. John James Audubon. Right. Oh, I love it. Do you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, good. I'm, yeah. I'm excited because it I was even a... know I even know who he is. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. All right. So only because uh I bought an Audubon 25 years ago next to Wrigley. Okay. Tower. Yeah. Yeah. What did you, what do you have? Is that the one in your, the Florida house? Is that no, the, no, it's, uh, it's the, um, oh, it is. Yeah. It's the heron, the yes. great white heron. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's yeah. more beautiful. Yeah. 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 All right. So we're going to talk about his background, his story and things associated with him. All right. right? All right. Right. So he was born uh, 1785. Yes. So he's known for his, um, the, the watercolors and the sketch, the charcoals of birds. Right. That's his famous right. thing. So 1785. So this is what I think is cool too is, is that time period in America and what, what he was doing at that time, which I think makes the story more but interesting. He was born in France. He was born in um, Haiti. Right. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Because. I heard he lived in story. France. Oh, right. The, yeah. the, he lived in France, and he came to America because his father didn't want him fighting in the Napoleonic exactly. Wars. Exactly. That's yeah. Fine. To avoid conscription. To, Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Okay. So yeah. I'll tell. So you have a good sense of this. Right. So he's famous for this Birds of America, this collection, this three hundred or four hundred and thirty-five life-size right. prints, and actually, bird artists today even kind of measure their their talent against really? these bird yeah. paintings. 
So he was born in Haiti. Like we said, he was an illegitimate son of his father, who was a French sea captain. And a, uh, he was a sugar plantation owner and his French Creole mistress. Right. She died six months after he was born. And the father was worried about a revolt on the island. So sent him to France That's, yeah. with his wife yeah. and said, here, raised this <laughs> illegitimate child. That's great. Oh, she was back in France. His wife. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. Oh, well, that poor guy, he got lonely. <laughs> sure. That's one way to look at it. Um, so she ended up raising him. And actually, she was very, they didn't have any children. Right. So she really was very good to him and, and loved him as if he were own. So you right. got to give her some credit for that. Jeez. Yeah. I don't think I'd be that sweet about it. No. No, I don't think. <laughs> well, they, yeah. Go ahead. No, I'm just, yeah. I mean, people marry guys or ladies that have had children from previous marriages. Mm-hmm. I think that's a tough one. Yeah. But like saying, hey, this is. Yeah, from my French mistress, from right. my mistress. Yeah. yeah. That's probably a little bit different. So she, they actually formally adopted him. She formally adopted him so that um, he wouldn't be illegitimate. But they he kind of hid that, like, that stigma of illegitimacy. He basically didn't really tell anybody that was, you know, up until he died, his family even still pretended, like, oh, no, that's that was his yeah. mom. And um, they didn't want the story to get out. When he was in France, he had a really strong interest in birds and nature and drawing and music. He would skip school all the time and just go out into the fields. Did he go to art school in France? Did he have any formal training? No, he had some some art lessons, but no real formal training. Right. He was really more self-taught. Wow, yeah, that's amazing. So 1803, you mentioned at 18, he's sent to America right. because they don't want him to be you know, taken yeah. into Napoleon's army. They had a family-owned estate in um, near Philadelphia. That's right. Yeah, I remember that part. And, and then so he, went, he, he went to the estate, which was being managed by someone else or one of the members of the family. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah so it was his family owned. So he, and he kind of took that over. And so he starts hunting, studying, drawing the birds. He just loved the frontier. Right. Lo- I mean, so we're talking that, 1803. Now, can you imagine what that would have been like, how I, wonderful that was to have come to this country in those days? I would have been the same. Like, all I want to do is just go into the wilderness. Right. Just to see. That's right. Because everything was like, you didn't know what was there. It could have been a five-headed monster. As see, far now, as you know. I, again, why I chose this topic is because I thought this would appeal to you, where my thought is I would rather eat glass right. than be alive. <laughs> well, that's like Lewis and Clark. That, I mean, that's what I would do. I would have been, I would have always wanted to get on the boat and go over the horizon. Really? Yeah, like Captain Cook, like everybody. I mean, that's like, that's like the modern-day astronaut, so, oh. yeah. I think it's either in your blood or it isn't. It's not in my blood. Yeah. I even get nervous like going to dive bars. I know. Like that's too much for me. So do I actually. <laughs> but my wife takes me to some good dive bars. She so, has she has no fear. She, yeah, yeah. Mary's the king of dive bars. <laughs> I'm the king of hunting out the wilderness. Yeah. yeah. So eighteen oh three and again that, that time period and what, what he's seeing and he's just like walking out into the wilderness, mm-hmm. hunting, you know, li- living the his life of his dreams. So they said when he got here to America, there were only six million people in America. Yeah, it's incredible. Six million, and and they're only on the East Coast. Yeah, was there anybody on the West Coast? Oh, eighteen oh three. Yeah, there yeah, would have been. been. Would San Francisco would have been settled? I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. So he just loved it, and he would just disappear for months. He'd take his gun and like yeah. his painting supplies and be he gone. He wasn't a very good uh, plantation. <laughs> Well, owner. yeah, that's that kind of. Although kinda, those guys didn't really do anything, plantation owners. Yeah, and where are they getting all this money? I mean, he's the dad's got the the place in Haiti, and then you know, it's like, gosh. Most it's, it's funny how so many people uh, they you know to have been born where you didn't have to worry about whether next week's 
uh, paycheck was coming from. Right. And most of those guys, all of those guys, like all the great artists, none of them ever seemed to worry about the paycheck. Although they were either driven by their art or they were, or else they were looked after. Yeah. yeah. Kind of Van Gogh got his paycheck from his brother. And right. I don't think Picasso ever worried too much about income. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. There's there's something to be said for and having And then they could happy. apply themselves to their passions. Right. So like if we had been able to apply ourselves to a passion instead of worrying about getting a paycheck. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, what would I be? The world's greatest podcaster. Yeah. Well, you're on your way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so he started doing this the first known bird banding experiment in North America. So he would tie strings around these eastern Phoebes, and he learned that they would return to the same nesting site each year. So he was doing kind of experimental oh, stuff oh, right. like that. I didn't know that. Yeah. He meets his wife, Lucy Bakewell. She actually is on the estate next door. She was um, 16. She and her family had moved from England in 1801. And they instantly fell in love. Right. And she, despite her privileged upbringing, she was pretty resilient. Right. Pretty much a frontier woman. Really adjusted very easily to the frontier life, the toughness. And she basically dedicated her life to helping him achieve his success. So you mentioned that. She's there working, taking care of the children so that he can go. Yeah, and but do like, all. what was he, what, like, what was the idea of success? I mean, was he saying to himself, oh, I'm going to make a shitload of money out of it wasn't that it's just a yeah, passion i think it was a passion yeah. i think ultimately he thought me what he would do with it would be publish them or sell them right um, but initially he's trying different businesses and they're just kind of failing and Correct. he's losing money right. and he's basically he couldn't run the estate well again like you said if you're gone for months at a time it's hard to right. have a, a plantation so he's trying different businesses her family said they would help him help support him with this business deal. They backed out and he ended up losing everything Right, and was in prison and they had to sell the farm. They had to sell everything. Right. So she's basically the woman she's behind him. Like, well, we'll, we'll get through this, you know, don't, don't worry. And so he continues drawing birds, continues doing that. She, they have four children total, two lived, two died very young, two boys, Victor and John. So she's taking care of these boys as he's, Pursuing his yeah. And then I think the, the, the story goes that he, um, it, what they recognize, like in those days, people used to uh, subscribe to publications. Mm -hmm. So he created like a, a Audubon publication. Uh -huh. And then that caught on. Right. And it was basically just a, a, a large magazine with, with his drawings inside yeah. of it. Yeah. So I'll, so, talk, I'll give so you details about these that. Like what they, benefactors yeah, these would, little tins that they would send to you. Correct. Yeah. yeah. I read that part. Yeah. So basically he starts, he's really, there's nothing else going on. And you kind of mentioned like, what, why did he decide to do this? He really had, he'd failed at all these businesses. He's like, right. I'm not, I'm not good at that. Right. I'm good at this. So I'm going to put everything into this. So he decided he was going to set off on this epic quest to depict America's bird community. Right. And basically, again, his gun, artist material, he had a, a young assistant with him. And so while he's gone, she goes to Louisiana. So this is like around 1821. She takes the boys with her. She founds a school. And then from about to about 1830, she founds these different schools where she's educating the daughters of these privileged families. And he's wandering through he's, swamps. Yes. He's just wow. taking a boat like down the Mississippi and right. he's going all these places. And yeah. So she's teaching music, sewing, all this, you know, swimming horsemanship, all these things to families to Goodness support gracious. him, which at the time... 
this is women were not earning a, a living. No. This is, you know, 1820s. Yeah. So the fact that she's doing this and that she's successful at it shows a lot about her character. So, again, he's floating down the Mississippi. And, and says a little bit about his character. Yeah. <laughs> which is quite interesting, isn't yeah. it? I yeah. think, you know, too, it's like they seemed well-suited to each other. Yeah, she got him. She got him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. She's like, yeah, I get what you're all about. Right. Self-centered. Up to a point. Yeah. Um, so he's, he's thought nothing of going 30, 40 miles into the wilderness and he basically, they said he discovered 23 species of birds yeah. over the course of these travels. It's a really good marksman. He used a shotgun to collect a specimen. So this right. is where I kind of went, what? Yeah. <laughs> so I, he's down there shooting all the birds. He's shooting all these birds. Yeah, that's how they collected all the, that's how they painted, that's how they, everything right. was shot dead. Yeah. I, so I'm imagining him like in the bushes, like sketching. No, a, <laughs> no he shot it and then sat down and painted it. And just and filled in the filled in the bullet holes. It's incredible. Yeah. Right. Okay. If you if you go to all the great museums, you you know you they just pull drawers out of just drawer after drawer of of birds or or insects. I mean, oh, they just God. collected them by the thousands. Yeah. So they they're talking about an expedition in Florida in 1831. He's writing a letter to a colleague, and he's like, "When I, when I don't shoot enough birds, when I shoot less than a hundred per day, I'm really disappointed." It's incredible. Less than a hundred a day, he's disappointed. The following year, he's exploring the Labradors, so off the northern shores of Gulf of St. Lawrence, right in Canada. That's Canada, right? So he takes an afternoon off to go painting, from painting to go shooting. So he shoots um, all these Atlantic puffins, and he says he got 27 of them without missing one. But why? Why was he doing that? Why? And again, why? What did he do with them? Why 27? Yeah, you only need one. Or two, maybe. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah. In case there was that's a That's human nature. Though. That's just, again, it's very, I did not know that part of his story. No, I no and that's, that seems so, that's, you know, so anti what he was trying to create. And that's the thing he's, but he didn't see a contradiction between bragging about killing 100 birds and then talking about civilization's rapid advance across the continent. Like how how we're destroying these birds right. and we're destroying these. He didn't see a contradiction between that. Right. Um, so he thought he had more of a problem with people destroying their habitat. Right. Um, so he you know he'd shoot a duck and love to see it fall, but he'd be like, oh don't no don't mess with yeah. the pelicans' habitat. Well, I guess I guess in those days they everything was in was ex, inexhaustible. It was forever. Yeah. And yeah, you know, passenger pigeon was was forever. They right. you know, they black. And then within 10 years, they're all gone. All the buffalo were, were, well, by the time he was doing that, the buffalo were nearly gone. Right. You know, so yeah, it's, it's very similar to what's going on today. You know, what do you mean? All what's... the tuna is going to be gone, you know. And what, so why? What's happening? Is it because, well, because of... we just keep, you know. Overfishing? Overfishing over everything. What do you think? Overpopulating. What do you think is the most endangered species right now as far as like, for, like fishing wise and that like what I should would, you be I would imagine nearly every, oh I think tuna yeah I mean who knew about sushi 25 years mm-hmm. ago and there isn't a, there's a sushi bar in every city in America these days yeah well not there's more than one yeah you know? but um yeah I just think about it yeah you know, it's, it's true um the, the the guys I work for they uh service the Pacific tuna fleet and uh, their warehouse is full and the the way they catch these tuna is, is unbelievable. They 
they drop pods in in the water, thousands of them. And then on these tuna boats, they they're connected live to you know their their Bluetooth or mm-hmm. or satellite. And then when the schools come along, uh, it ra- the, these float in boys radio signals to the boats, and the boats know exactly the location, turn around and come back. So you know fishing these days is not is not like trolling wow. around. Yeah. they know immediately where everything is. And then and you're the not just catching supply, tuna. The right? demand is inexhaustible. Yeah, it's ex- it'll never stop. So I think the only way we can save stuff is by farming. But um, you know I don't know if we can keep up with it. Mm-hmm. So. Mm. Yeah, that's but like I say, going back to those days, you know, we I mean, we shot like every buffalo. <laughs> Isn't that incredible? It's like, hey guys, should we like there's only ten left. Now let's get them as well, you know. Yeah. So all well, the passenger prisons were were destroyed in It's that uh, idea that what's here is for me. What's here is for me and my consumption and I don't care about yeah. the future. I don't care well, about we don't we don't fit into nature, do we? Uh, no. Yeah, maybe the Native American did, but we certainly don't. Yeah. And so you're right. So there he is, you know, drawing these beautiful paint paintings, mm-hmm. but shooting twenty seven puffins. Yeah. And what do you do with the with the twenty six of them? Just well, just throw them. Up. What, what? I I don't know. Did he eat them? No. <laughs> what does a puffin taste like? Um, and I wear puffin. Oh, they're delicious, roasted puffin. Yeah, I don't. I just I don't know, and that I couldn't find that out either. That's where I was like, now yeah. do you donate these to museums? Are that you know what I mean? What's what's happening with that? So, but as far as he wasn't technically well, a scientist. If you shot something, yeah. If you shot a puffin within four days, it would be rancid, wouldn't it? Yeah. So, like, I wonder if he had. He'd the have skill. to be taxidermy. Well, he would. Yeah. Yeah. He would have to pull all of its guts out. Yeah. And clean it. Yeah. Oof. Um, but I'm sure those frontier guys. I'm sure they ate a lot of what they shot. That that could be. Yeah. Yeah. That's. I mean, he's out there. He's got nothing. He doesn't have that's anything right. with him. That's a good, hopefully, I, saw, hope. I think I read in Lewis and Clark that the guys on that expedition would eat between 6 to 12 pounds of meat a day. Oh, God. I mean, they weren't oh, eating yeah. Brussels sprouts or anything. They were just eating meat. Well, yeah. They're just burning a billion yeah, calories, exactly, too. Exactly. Need protein, yeah. Exactly. So he would, you know, spend all this time, collect all these specimens. He used watercolor, pastel, right. crayons, occasionally pencil, charcoal, chalk, and pen and ink, but not the oil paint which was popular at the time but he chose another method so this book that he created birds of america it's just this comprehensive so i mentioned it's 435 watercolor paintings so europeans at the time didn't really they wasn't just that they didn't know the breadth of american bird life they didn't know the the breadth of america correct so this was such an early time that people didn't realize the extent of america itself and what was here and the the vastness the frontier the wildlife they had no concept of that so that kind of still (laughs) people still are amazed at how big america well right from overseas you know well you drove from here to tucson tucson (laughs) yeah it's a long way it's a long way yeah and we drove from here to key west yeah and it was like it was. Uh, I just looked. I'm I'm going to be doing that in December. I just looked. It's uh, uh it's fourteen hundred miles. Yeah, that's just going down. Yeah, and that's and you you're exhausted you doing that driving. Chicago, it's twelve hours to get the top the top of Wisconsin. <laughs> so it's a big country. Yeah, yeah it is yeah. really big. Do you remember when we were in, um, when we were in England? I don't know if when Pat was in charge of the map, and I think it was your your cousin was like, oh, Pat, here's the map. Just tell us when to turn. And Pat's looking at the map as if it's like the state of Illinois. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he's like, wait, we're supposed to turn like yeah. way back. It's just you have this concept of it, That's right. of it being 
bigger yeah. than it is. Yeah. Or if you know, you just I think the uh, if you drive from England to Scotland, it's uh, I think it's like less than six hours. Oh my gosh! So it's like here to Green Bay. Yeah. So if you're in London, yeah, and you want to go to Glasgow, it's like going to Green Bay. Put that in in perspective yeah. of going to Tucson or Seattle. Well, what was That's one of those? Size there's of a there's a video that shows you actually like how like relative size Correct. wise what yeah. lines up and you know when you compare the the true size of something. Yeah. But based on our you know our map when you look at it because it's America's the most important. That that's the biggest, and that looks, you yeah. know, compared to everything else. But it's interesting. They, uh, you know, when I'm down in Australia, they have lots of maps down there, which they sell to tourists, which basically has got the whole of Europe and the UK and everything in like a quarter of Australia. <laughs> so they love to kind of show how big Australia is, right? Which, of course, is nowhere near as big as the USA. Yeah. Well, not the well, they call it the mainland USA because you've got Alaska, which is yeah huge. Yeah. So. And that doesn't. And look... then another thing is, is like going back to Audubon. How did those guys get around? You know, how did he go from Florida to like the Canadian border? Mm-hmm. Well, on a horse? It makes well, no sense. I don't know how they did it. Right. A lot of boat travel, it sounded correct, like. Correct, correct. Um, yeah, but like I so said. So he must have been calling his wife saying, I need <laughs> I need $5 for a boat. And she's like, okay, honey, just don't come home for another year. Yeah, I'll see you in a year. Yeah, I'll see you in a year. Well, that ultimately she kind of loses her patience, which makes correct. sense. Yeah. So. Basically, so he would just, he'd be out in nature, he'd hear a, even the birds singing, and he'd right. be like, oh my God, that might be a new bird. And he was just obsessed with finding new birds, finding new species. And um, he would even get, other people knew who he was doing this, so they would bring him birds they had found. They right. would go off to places. So he was able to really get this huge, you know, this creation of this book with all these right. pictures. But he, what he would do is he would um, pose them. So he would use threads and wire and yeah. tie it around them and yeah. the wings and tail to position it. And then he would lift the wires until he got the right pose. And then he would sketch that and, and draw that. Um, Going back to what you said, when, yeah. when, he, um, when you camped in those days at the turn of the century, there was a, and, and this is, I remember as a child, um, there was a thing called the dawn chorus. So like as, just as the sun comes up in the morning, all the birds come oh, alive. Gosh. So even when I was a kid, you couldn't hear anything except for all the birds singing. Yeah. Uh, and and you don't get that anymore mm-hmm. because they're all gone. Yeah. So and I, in uh, in New Zealand, I read a book about Jane, uh, Captain Cook. When he arrived in New Zealand, in New Zealand, he was down in Fiordland, and the first morning the men went crazy because the the bird noise was just it. It was like you know the cicadas. Yeah. It was like a million oh times gosh. worse than the cicadas. Yeah. And now you don't get that anymore because they introduce wheats and uh, weasels and stoats and, uh-huh. and, and and everything just ate wiped it out. It wiped it all out. Oh, but you still hear it like at the cabin, like when we were up when our cabin in Wisconsin, you mm-hmm. could hear it then. Yeah. And like when I talked to my neighbour up in Wisconsin, oh yeah, you know I heard so and so yesterday morning. Yeah. And they know like the pelated uh, wood, woodpecker, mm-hmm. pelated or pelated. Plate. I don't know. Plated. Any case, but I used to love being you, up at your place and looking and using the binoculars and the birds yeah. and looking for birds. But we and, don't do that, you yeah. Know? And that's why, like I say, he would have been so in tune uh-huh. with what was going on, right? That it's uh, we can't even begin to understand what he what no. was going on now. He he would have, I mean, it would have been a wonderful time. Yeah. So in um, eighteen thirty three, he goes to Boston. I mentioned that most of the specimens he got himself, but he was at a museum. And the museum proprietor says he had this injured golden eagle. 
And he's this guy, museum shot proprietor, it? got it oh. from it was live. He right. got it from, um, but it was injured. But he got it from this market, and he wanted to know if Audubon wanted to draw it. And he when he saw this bird, he said he was so amazed by its majesty that he just wanted to let it go. He's like, I can't even. I can't draw. This is too beautiful. He says, but then something whispered to me, and I thought, you know, it'd be better for me to show you his semblance. So he try, he tries to euthanize it humanely, can't do it, <laughs> ends up taking a pin and just stabbing it through the heart. This yeah. beautiful golden eagle. So he draws it, but he said after, spent two weeks drawing it, and afterwards he just had like a mental breakdown because that really struck him. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know this yeah. part of the story. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Really took a lot out of him to do that and just to be confronted with this, the majesty of this bird. Wow. I didn't have too big a problem stabbing it in the heart. No. But I yeah. think in those days they didn't, that was, you know, that was life. You know, they, you were, you, people, you'd walk along and you'd see people pulling chickens' heads off. Right. I think if you're killing... hunting, you're, you're dealing with this all the time. All the time. In um, 1823, he went to Philadelphia, New York trying to get financial support for, like, subscribers, like you mentioned, trying to get subscribers right. so that he could publish his artwork, but he couldn't get any support. So in 1826, he goes to the United Kingdom, and he's got 250 of his original illustrations. He's trying to find subscribers and engravers. Engravers, yeah. Yeah, so he finds these, um, this father-son, Havel, I think it is. Yeah, right. Robert. Um, senior and junior have well they were um, famous animal engravers right so he got them to do this and they completed the project 1838 so it took them a while so here's the bit that always I've always wondered is how do you how do you engrave how did they did they right. put a did they put like a uh, did they sketch put the that's, sketch that's down? what I'm so yeah. it's like it, that's the art form how too. do you engrave a feather so know? right yeah. and so I think I think what happens is you have the basic form, and then um, I think there. I think you come in with with different colors, and you so you kind of stamp it. What I from what I read, what it sounds like is you create this copper plate, right? This copper plate Correct. of the drawing. You basically kind of stamp the paper with it, and then you come back and you have the artist color it and fill it in. Right, right, but. So the copper plate, who engraved the copper plate? The engravers. The engravers. That, so think <clears> about <throat> the art involved with that to create. Well, that's the, my point. Right. So that so Audubon had nothing to do with that. No. So when you look at, at one of his prints, it's the engraver's picture that you're looking at. Mm -hmm. They just copied his. They painting. copied that's his. That's my point. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So that, that's you an can't amazing. Say, well, it's a copy of Audubon's painting. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So he had the idea, I guess. And created the, the original. So he basically is funding this printing project with right. this pay-as-you-go subscription. So prints were usually in sets of five. So every month or two, you get these tin cases, and you'd get like a one big bird, a medium-sized bird, and three small birds. Right. And so... These are the prints. These right. are the prints right. from these copper from these, plates. From these copper plates. Yes. And so... They're published unbound and without any text, and they said there was probably not more than 200 complete sets were ever right. created. But literally, once these come out, he's like an overnight success. I mean, right. 13 years to do this. Right. But these life-size, these dramatic portraits, people were just blown away by them. And there was sort of this romantic era, you know, on the continent. So they're like, what? you know, this just kind of adds to that, the beauty and these exotic birds in America, you know, that we had no idea would even be there. In the meantime, Lucy's back in the U.S. Working around. Super song. pissed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And she's kind of like, okay, 
you know, this is enough's enough. So they, they would be writing each other, but she was sort of like, if we're going to do this, we need to be together. This right. is not working. So he, you know, he's gone for uh, trying to sell these. He's in Europe. And she's eventually like, I need to be with you. So she does eventually go to England with him. And then she's like, from now on, any of these projects, we're going to we're going to be together. Right. So um, the poor, <laughs> the poor thing. Just teaching away. So he... She basically spent 30 years looking after him. Yeah. Yeah. So he becomes super popular. They kind of regain their status. They're able to support themselves in England and in America. He's very famous. And friends and family are recognizing him as an artist for sure at this point. And they're bringing over these huge copper plates. Yes. So he brings them all with them, with him. Untold pounds. They're very heavy. I think they were 37 pounds each. Right. So he brings all those back with him. Right. He's got the original drawings. He's yeah. got the copper plates. And so as he's publishing the Birds of America, then he writes his companion text because those didn't have words with them. Right. Kind of explaining. It's a five-volume piece wow. that he wrote with an ornithologist to explain the species and right. the knowledge they had about those. So the last print for this um, Birds of America was issued in 1838. And again, he's they're very comfortable now. They're traveling. They settle back in New York. And then he takes a trip out west to do this book called About the Mammals of America. So he also oh, did right. I mammals. Didn't know about that. Yeah. So he did studies of those. Were there as well. any left when he got out? There? I don't know. If I think they're all dead. <laughs> yeah. He was going to do a buffalo and couldn't find any. <laughs> in Canada. So basically, this bir- this book, Birds of America, gives him um, fame as a naturalist and a painter. But it, again, it's so costly to, yeah. to publish this. Um, so they then they did a smaller lithograph version of it, and that was much less expensive, and that was available for a wider audience, right. and that made him a lot of money. So right. that helped support his family. So they he retired in pretty well, and pretty much he was good material comfort. They bought this. Um, property which is now manhattan um area of manhattan so this little land and he kind of gets um develops um he becomes senile he ends up having a stroke losing his eyesight and then he dies in this property um january 27th 1851 he's 65 and he'd been married to Lucy for 40 years wow. at that point. So you th- you'd think at this point, here's Lucy. She actually eventually lives to be 87. Right. Yeah. And she survives her husband and her two sons. She ends up raising two of her granddaughters, educating them, raising them. And despite his fame, she's kind of left destitute. Well, that's what, yeah. And, and yeah. then she has no money. No money. So then her next thing is she sells all the uh, copper plates. So, yeah. And before that, she sells the original that's right. Painting. So she goes to the historical society and says, "My husband's life's worth the watercolors. Right. Will you buy these for five thousand? So this is eighteen sixty-two. So we're in the middle of the Civil War. Yeah. She's she has no. This is eleven years after he's died. Yeah. She has no money, and she presents these. And she each painting she explains in detail where he was when he saw this right. bird, what happened, to try to sell it to them. So they end up asking people to support the subscription, and they end up giving her. $4,000 for all the original watercolors yeah. in 1863. Right. So think about uh, the time period and to be yeah. able to come up with that money. Yeah. And we talked about the copper plates. But then she's broke again because she then sells the copper plates. Right. So that 4000 you know, wasn't really enough to, I guess, keep her going. But so those plates were 37 pounds each. So they were then they're sold for scrap. Yeah. So for cannon. They were turned into cannon for yeah. the Civil War. 
he, you know, he had stored these in New York. So she sells all of them to in this warehouse. They stored them in this yeah. warehouse. And then years later, their story goes that there's this 14-year-old boy and his mother. And they see these and they're like, these are worth something. Like right. these shouldn't be destroyed. So they get 80 of them. Oh. So they saved 80 of those copper plates. Right. Some are in pretty bad condition. Some right. are in good condition. But they're now at museums and some private collectors. And But there there are some that still exist. Right. So she died June 18th, 1874, at the age of 87. Wow. Yeah. So the 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 um the the prints that you see for sale in like there's an Audubon shop uh -huh. next to is it the Wrigley Tower. The, some of those are originals or the actual originals, but they're incredibly expensive. Oh right. Yeah. But the prints that you see now, they must come from the lithograph or mm -hmm. the yeah, yeah. So like when we got Right. Um, that certainly wasn't an original. So. It would be, if it was, yeah, you and exactly. I would not be sitting here. Exactly, exactly. God, <laughs> imagine how much be worth. So, are there are there his original um, paintings? Where are they on display? So, I, that's a great question. So, there are different museums have them. Right. Um, that you know, they she gave sold them to that historical society. So, there are different. They're kind so of spread think out. The Smithsonian's and probably natural history museums. I mean, I know them. there's some. You know, so maybe some of the Audubon societies today have some of those as well. But they were talking about his paintings. I think well, we'll get to that. I'll get to that in a second. Like uh, what they what you'd get now for right. them, because that's really interesting too. So, what I again, what I loved when we first started talking about this was just the spirit of young America, and yeah. I feel like he just captured that yes. in this wilderness and going out there, and he's just this strong, enduring character, this observer, super into nature, avid hunter, but also had this deep appreciation and concern for conservation. Ironically, right. it's hard to believe that with what's happening. But he kind of sounded the alarm for the destruction of these birds and habitats. Right. So later in the course of his life and work, he revolutionized the standards for wildlife illustration. He developed a style and ability that ranked him among the great fine artists of his time and foretold the development of the modern environmental conservation movement. Wow. It's argued that without Audubon's work, the general public at the time would never have learned about the existence right. of many species of birds that he shot and drew. And people never would have cared to right. eventually agree that places like the Everglades need to exist Correct. to protect these species. Yeah. So there's one side of it where you're like, right. they, if I don't know this exists, kind of that idea with zoos, right? Yeah, yeah. It's a double-edged yeah, sword. it's a double-edged sword. Uh, because you, if you go to, yes. yeah. You, another thing I heard was that, you know, like um, the Everglades were getting destroyed. They were uh, cutting down, uh, uh, what's that? Is it the cedar trees? Just to make uh, orange boxes, you know. So like 200... 500-year-old cedars were just chopped down to make orange boxes. You remember years yeah. ago, they would have these boxes that like were like crates, thin Like sort of, yeah. Yeah, and they were like stapled together. So, and that was just all just, you know, and, and thank God they did stop doing mm -hmm. some of that stuff. Yeah. You know, it's quite remarkable when you think about it. You can fly into Miami Airport. You can actually, as you look out at Miami Airport, you're going over the Everglades. They're yeah. like, you know, it, it, thank goodness they saved that stuff. Right. Because when you look at what's left on, you know, on the other side of Miami Airport, yeah. it's just high rises as far <sighs> as you can see. So the other, the flip side of that, like I said, so he's making people wear these birds, but he also exposed people to the beautiful plumes. Yes. And then they're in high demand yes. for fashion. So yes. turn of the 20th century, yeah. thousands of birds are being killed That's right. to order, to provide feathers, to get yeah. decorate women's hats. There's this fashion craze began in the 1870s. It became so widespread that by 1886, birds were being killed 
for the millinery trade at the rate of five million a year. That's right. Yeah. Many species faced extinction, and in the, Florida, uh, the plume white, birds. The, the crested white. Um, Herons down there were practically extinct. Right. Yeah. So first, you know, the birds are kind of moved because people are coming in. Yeah. And so they're kind of shoved down. But the, the egrets, the, the, That's right. were the little snowies, they called Snowy them. Egrets. So they're even more prized for their nuptial blooms. Yeah. So during mating season and courtship, these osprey plumes, they called them, they actually used as part of the British Army uniforms as right. well. Until 1889, they discontinued them. But the plumes were sold for $32 an ounce. Wow. In 1915, which was equal to the price of gold. Wow, isn't and, that amazing? Yeah. They said the millinery industry was yeah. a $17 million a year industry. Yeah. They've got pictures of uh, of ladies walking through Central Park in New York, all with the big plumed hats on. And and it's practically, they practically, you know, extinct. Yes, most of the birds. Wiped, out yeah, wiped out species. Yes. Yeah. So they what would happen is these hunters would go in and just take the you know, the birds yeah. and leave the babies and yeah. the babies, you know, wouldn't, they would starve to death. The chicks yeah. would starve. So these plumes, you'd see them all over, you know, Paris, New York City, That's right. all yeah. over the place. They said hunters could collect plumes from a hundred birds on a good day. Wow. So collect means you're just, you're yeah. killing. Well, they could on a good day, but then <laughs> after a few years, there wasn't many birds no. left. So, no. Yeah. So one result of his legacy is the Audubon Society. Right. So they chose their name to reflect his love of birds and interest in preserving the natural habitat. So he didn't have a role in for forming that organization that bears his name. That was created 1886 after his death. Um, the founder was actually his – he was schooled by Audubon's widow. She was his teacher. Oh. So he founded the society 1886, and he basically he wanted to stop the indiscriminate slaughter of wild birds – and so that's kind of the beginning of our nation's conservation ethic. So he appealed to readers. They were able to get like 39,000 people joining. And then another woman in 1886, she started, like kind of kept the, the Audubon Society going. Uh -huh. And she was outraged by the slaughter of flocks of birds for their plumage in the Everglades in South Florida. So basically this time it, after she kind of, this other woman came in, Mrs. Hemingway, they really start to endure. So there's like... More than 15 state Audubon societies have been formed, people working collaboratively to protect birds, wildlife, and their habitats. But I wanted to specifically talk with you about the Florida Audubon Society because right. that's an area that you probably know more about. Um, just to kind of show, like talk about what they've done and what right. they're known for. So basically, again, it's talking about conservation, restoring right. natural ecosystems, focusing on birds, wildlife, and their habitat for the benefit of humanity. Um, so some of the things they accomplished were they had this law that persuaded the legislator to outlaw plum hunt, plume hunting in the state. When did they do that? That was 1901. Right. And they created a fund to hire wardens to protect birds and hire lighthouse keepers in Key West and the Dry Tortugas to watch out for oh, wow. hunters. And then in 1903, President Theodore Roosevelt establishes the Pelican Island as the first federal bird reservation. Right. And that gave birth to the National Wildlife Refuge System. Yeah. So that was 1903. 1908, an Audubon warden is killed in the line of duty. So I didn't realize too, what a dangerous job that was. Yeah. Yeah. To be a warden, kind of like a kind of like in Africa, being a being a those guys over there trying yeah. to protect the rhinos and right different species. Exactly. Yeah. So once people heard that, wait, people are dying because they're trying to protect these. So, so there some... was a big backlash for that too. Um, so they really intensified their national campaign against wearing feathers. 
right. to you know discourage people from wanting to buy them. So in 1950s, they expand their focus uh, to include all aspects of Florida Bay and Florida Keys environment, ranging from corals, seagrasses, mangroves, to game fish, co- crocodiles, and bald eagles. Right. 1947. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. So we heard the name Marjorie Stoneman Douglas in relation to that school shooting. Right. I didn't know who she was. Right. Did you, Nor do I. Okay. So, okay. So yeah. great because she was a journalist. She was an author, women's suffrage advocate, and a conservationist. So she publishes this book called The Everglades, right. River of Grass, and teaches the world to love the swamp. So she spends five years researching what little was known about the ecology and the history of the Everglades in South Florida. And she's with this geologist, and they discover that the, that the Everglades is the only source of fresh water, that the Biscayne Aquifer, that's it. That's, that's it. what's filling the Everglades. That's the source of fresh water in Florida. Right. They wanted to fill that in. Yeah, yeah. And so she's the one who's like, hold on a second. This is our only source of fresh water. That encourages the Audubon Society to um, have established the Everglades National Park. Wow. Yeah, so Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. So she was the main person to realize the dangers of draining, draining the swampland. And she said... One, oh, thank yeah, so this is... And, oh, and here. There you go. That's for you. Oh. That's her book. Oh, man. I thought you might be interested in reading. Yeah. I thought, you know, especially... Oh, wow. I didn't know that. I didn't know. I have no idea if it's good or not, but... <laughs> the strangest river in the world. That is really cool. Thank you. Sure. Thank you. Nancy just gave me the Everglades, Rivers of Grass, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. What a name. Yeah. Doesn't that bring back something? Well, some that's memories? it, which I was, I kind of went down that rabbit hole when I was researching her because I was like, yeah. who is this? What yeah. is her story? Why would you name Why a school that name after so her? familiar? Yeah. Yeah. And so there was a quote from her, which was kind of cute because at the time people were like, sit down, shut your mouth. You're right. a woman. Yeah. And she's like, well, it's a woman's business to be interested in the environment. It's just an extended form of housekeeping. Cool saying. Yeah. What a yeah. great saying. So I think I'd be interested to know what you think about her writing and what she says. Well, but I... you know, it, just since we go down to Florida a lot or have been to a lot, there's a, a it's still going on down there. They're fighting like crazy because they're getting these red tides yes. that come out of Lake Okeechobee. And what happens is, is Lake Okeechobee is a massive lake right in the middle of Florida. But what happens to all these... Um, was it there? You know, the the sugar growers and the um, and the citrus growers just put so much fertilizer down; it all floods oh, in, and then yeah. you get you get a, you get a mixture of warm sun, fresh water, and fertilizer, and you end up with these massive algae blooms, which you know spill out onto the beaches. Mm-hmm. And and in some ways, it's kind of good because then all the tourists don't go there because the water's red. Right. It it, it turns red or orange, and mm-hmm. then you've got dead fish flopping around. So, you know, it goes on every year and um, they're all arguing about it and it goes on and on and on because the, you know, the same old thing as the NRA, the, 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 the fruit growers down there and the sugar growers are so powerful, mm-hmm. you know, and the tourism trade's also very powerful. Right, right. In fact, there's a good little story. Key West tried to ban uh, suntan lotion uh, because it's killing the reefs. You're kidding. Yeah. And so they did. They banned it. But then uh, the state of Florida went down there and said, no, you can't do that. You have to, you can't ban it because the health side of it is people are going to get skin cancer. Right. So there's ongoing war down there. Yeah. So this is kind of what's happening. It's good to see. Yeah. You know, that they're actually trying to stop it because it's, and then there's two sides to every story. Right. Yeah. And what's, what's, we, sometimes we don't even know 
the results of our little actions, things that we're doing. Well, it's not little. It, you're like, you get three cruise boats in, you've got what? Oh, God. Maybe 10,500 people, mm-hmm. of which maybe 7,000 all go snorkeling, mm-hmm. smothered That's in true. suntan That's lotion. That's true. Yeah. You know. Yeah, so maybe we can't do this stuff. Maybe we have to limit. Well, it seems like we get so upset when we can't do certain mm-hmm. things, but then, you know, maybe we, we have to stop mm-hmm. doing certain things. So, But in any case, that is yeah. really a cool yeah. book. Thank I you think, very much. And I thought, especially with your appreciation for the keys in that area. So another thing for the Audubon societies in the 1950s, they uh, expanded their scientific research programs and became heavily involved in effort to ban the use of pesticides because they suspected they were causing population failures for eagles, the ospreys, the brown pelicans, and the other end of chain consumers. They also helped to get the legislation to protect the bald eagle. I didn't realize this, but Florida has the largest population of bald eagles Mm -hmm. in the continental United States. Yeah, Yeah, you see them them a lot down there. I don't know if I've seen one when I've been down there. Yeah, and ospreys. I've seen them. Yeah. I've never even thought to me that like that's like Colorado or that's right. like Wisconsin. You know what I mean? I don't think of bald eagles. I think there's I mean, so when I first started going down to the Keys, I said to a guy down there, "How can you go out fishing and still catch so many fish because there's thousands. I mean, there's more boats between Miami and Key West than probably the rest of the world put together. I've never seen so yeah. many boats. Everybody's got a boat." Right. But the fishing's still pretty good. And, and basically what it is, is that whole Everglades area mm-hmm. is just, it's so prolific. Mm-hmm. It breeds bait fish by the billions. Really? Um, if you go in the, uh, from, from like Marathon Key, you can go 50 miles into the Gulf of Mexico and it doesn't get any deeper than nine feet. That's as <sighs> deep as it is. But it's like a, it's a breeding ground and you just, it's so alive when you mm-hmm. go out there. It's fish jumping everywhere. Yeah. And what it is, is it just it's this massive breeding ground. And because it's all coming out through the Everglades mm-hmm. and you've got mangroves, it's just the perfect mm-hmm. environment. And so what you get then, of course, is you've got all these fish, then you're going to get the birds that eat the fish and, you know, it's yeah. huge pelican. So, yeah, the Everglades is really, and, and, and when Audubon went there, I can't imagine what it would have looked right. like. You know? Right, right. I can't imagine. What they, what they were able to do. Oh. And again, we kind of go back to our Audubon, our guy in, originally. Yeah. And as much as, you know, I was sort of turned off by how he got his paintings done. Yeah. The fact but, that what has come from him, you know, there was there's good things that came yes. from him for yeah. sure. Yeah. Also, they the Audubon got helped um, ban DDT Correct. and DDE in the United States. They also are protecting manatees, which right. I have yet to see a manatee. Wow. I'm hoping my you, next trip I'll see one. You have to, um, if you see one, all you do is just, and you're not supposed to, but you just turn the tap off. <laughs> and, uh, so but, here, here we're talking about how to protect. Yeah. How to, yeah. And you're like. <laughs> yeah, you break the law and you run inside. <laughs> don't so, yeah. They love water. They love fresh water. Yeah. So well, if, the, if you, you tend to see them when it hasn't rained for a while. Okay. That's when you see them. So if I'm cleaning my boat and the water's running, it runs off the boat into the, into the, uh, into the ocean, yeah. uh, that's when the manatees come around. And they just roll over on their back and they open their mouth. And their mouth, it's like looking into the mouth of an elephant. Come on. Yeah. They have like a little trunk. It's not big. Right. But they have like a, they've got the same shaped mouth as an elephant. And they just lay on their back and just open their mouth and you just turn the hose on. And Come on. They'll drink, they'll drink there for 15 minutes. Just, yeah, nonstop. Yeah. Oh, my god. And they're gosh. quite big. They're very yeah. big, yeah. Well, that's the, the – they're yeah. just – to me, it's like this weird 
creature that's just yeah. roaming. It's roaming. Yeah. It's like prehistoric. It's a, it's a sea cow. Yeah. It's like a big cow. Yeah. It's like it's it's actually it's a hippopotamus that yeah that just floats around. Oh they're, my God. they're the least attractive animal you'll ever see. Oh my gosh. Yeah. All right. So back to his paintings. So um, early seventies com- companies began producing high quality limited edition reproductions. Correct. So yeah. that might be what what That's you what have. We've got, yeah. They said there's nearly four hundred thousand already published prints in these limited editions, and they can range from twenty five to several thousand dollars, right. depending on which edition it is and which picture. There's right. certain birds that are more popular. Right. Basically, oh, so the, a full edition of the Birds of America, so full printed, like from the first printing, sold in 2010 for 7.3 million pounds wow. at Sotheby's, breaking the world record for a single book. Wow. Another one was up for auction, I think 2018, and they thought it would get about $12 million, but I, they don't know if it sold. They're estimated that between 20 to 25 million copies or reproductions of the original Audubon images have wow. been produced since the 1930s. So, again, we're, this is not an artist that we talk about very often, but 20 to 25 million yeah, copies? huge. That's a lot. It is. That's yeah. a lot. So a few quotes from him. One is that he said the woods would be very silent if no birds sang except that's the ones sure. who sang the best. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And then the last thing he I wanted to end with is um, – a true conservationist is a man who knows that the world is not given by his fathers, but borrowed from his children. Yes. Very true. Even more true today than ever. So, so true. Yeah. So true. Yeah, we have to remember that. So I think yeah. it's a it's a good, an interesting topic. And again, what I love about this topic is I don't know very many people who I could talk to about this, you know. Well, I, got in, I only got involved in it because of walking down Michigan Avenue. And stopping and and seeing them in the window there, yeah, and just thinking they're the coolest looking prints. Oh my gosh! So yeah. my favorite. What what is your favorite? Do you have one that you can think of? I mean, the one that you have. Pelican. Okay. Yeah, I love the pelican. Yeah. Um, I love the flamingo. And the flamingo. Yeah, it, it's funny because it's all the, the Florida herons. birds. Yeah, it's all yeah, the Florida yeah, yeah. birds. Yeah, those are yeah. my favorites too. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. I yeah. love them. They're just so exotic looking. And so you know, beautiful. like in Florida, there used to be a lot of uh, flamingos, but uh, there isn't anymore. But um, I'm being told that the paddle bills are coming back, and they're they're pink as well. What is that? It's like a bird with a with a with a. It's got a, a beak, a long beak, uh-huh. um, but with with like a paddle at the end. And they, okay. they the reason the reason they're pink is because they eat shrimp. Okay. So what happens is is they go along the shallows, and, and we have a, a lot of shallow ponds on the golf course down mm-hmm. there, and so they walk along just eating these tiny little okay. vertebrates. Like and flamingos, that's what turns yeah, flamingos. that's what turns the flamingo pink is uh-huh. eating, all the, eating all the little tiny shrimp. I love, um, I saw a video recently of baby flamingos. I'd never seen oh, them before. No, no. <laughs> they're no, so never, cute. Yeah, I've never seen a baby flamingo. They're just <laughs> yeah. fluff balls. Oh, the other painting I love too are his parrots. Yeah. They're so colorful. Yeah. Yeah, so you're right, but they're all like Florida birds. It's a shame. I wonder if he ever painted like some like macaws and those types, like you know, yeah. South American. Yeah, I wonder if he ever did those. I don't know. I mean, four hundred thirty-five. So I don't. Does does America have a lot of native? Well, it has a, like it doesn't have very colorful parrots, does it? America. I don't. I don't so know. yeah. So I don't know if they're original or where yeah. they came from. Yeah. But that's it. That so was that too bad? Was that bad? No. Okay. Cool. Good. It was cool. That good. was really a great subject. Very, very interesting. I learned a lot. Oh, I learned a lot more than I uh, yeah. But yeah, I've and I've, the only thing I've ever I've, it's all little bits and pieces mm-hmm. that I've heard, 
just like going down to Key West and going and looking at some order burns there. Yeah. Or you just pick up little bits, little yeah. snippets. Yeah. And then you kind of try to put it all together. But I always knew there was this poor suffering wife in the background. <laughs> and and like the, these poor guys, they're always broke. Like, you know, I sometimes I think that they might have been not very really good looking after their money either. Right. I think they were kind of like, and, you know, you spend three years wandering around the wilderness. Right. I mean, you're going to blow some big well, time cash. Steve and I it. were talking about that too. You know, Steve. Yeah. And we're saying, you know, just because you're not necessarily good at at managing your money. No. So you can be a fantastic artist or a fantastic Correct. athlete, but you're not good at managing your money. No. That's not – it doesn't mean you're going to be able to do both. So, You know, the sad part for all these artists is that 90% of them are so – you know, they don't realize how good they were till they're gone. <laughs> yes. You know, they, so I, yeah. a lot of them go to their grave just so miserable. Or sometimes and they're, they're overrated years... when they're here that you're like, right, really? Right, like that's right, not that interesting. Right. Or that's not that. But like the modern artists, like even this guy Banksy, mm -hmm. he's like, he's adulated. You know, everybody yeah. loves him. Yeah. And he, I don't know who he is. No one knows who no. he is. But I doubt if he's probably older than 40 or something years of age. Yeah. But he's really, really famous. Yeah. So I just saw a great painting he's done the other day of um, the House of Commons in yes. England, and it's all monkeys. Yeah, have you seen it? Yeah, it's didn't it just sell? Was it like twelve million yeah, or something? Yeah, twelve million. And then I saw another one. He's just done. It's the um, it's the flag of the EU, mm -hmm. and it's someone's chipping one of the one of the stars out of it, which of course is England leaving Brexit. Yeah, so, yeah. Well, I love too that when that other one sold the girl with the red balloon. Yeah. When it went through the it shredder. Went through the shredder. What a cool dude. Such a great guy. Yeah. Love that. Love yeah. that attitude. Like, you need I'm to not... get him on here. Yes. If you could. I might know him. I might know someone who knows him. <laughs> you could him. be Banksy. I'll get over my mate. I'll do a Banksy. <laughs> as long as I don't have to paint. Yeah. Well, thank you for doing this. I Pleasure. know. I'm, Pleasure. I, like I said, I, I I knew you'd be okay once you got started right. because we always have great conversations. I was trying to think who it was being. I was coming mm -hmm. up with different names. I was thinking it's either going to be Bobby Moore, who was the captain of England 1966 World Cup, <laughs> okay, but it no. wasn't. So that was disappointing. <laughs> um, then I was thinking it'd be Van Gogh because yeah. Mary's dragged me to every Van Gogh <laughs> there is. I keep telling her I like him just to shut her up. Um yeah. You're just... You know, I would not – Mary has introduced me to all the mm -hmm. art in my life. So, yeah, it's, it's she's definitely been the, yeah. the one that's – Well, she's she got to get on here next. She started dragging me around, and she... now I actually think I might drag her around. Right. So. She's got to get on here next. And it's funny because she and I will talk, and I'll go, that was a podcast. Like, you yeah. and I just had a conversation yeah. that would have been a podcast. Well, and she's like, oh, no, Just no. tell her you're not going to do a podcast. <laughs> just get her to um, – just say, sit here. Yes. Just yeah. sit here, and I need to practice. Yeah. Yeah, so we'll, we'll get her eventually. We'll wow. get her eventually. But thank you for doing this. Thank you, Nate. Loved Appreciate having you. It. So remember, guys, to subscribe, rate, and review. Our podcast is on iTunes and Spotify. If you want more information about the things that we talk about in this episode, there'll be links to that on our website, thesodramaticpodcast.com. And finally, remember, it's okay to be so dramatic. <laughs>